Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. So this morning, we are uh, continuing on in our series in Hebrews, and today we're just going to be hitting on one verse. Uh, A lot of the verses right now are very condensed, and there's tons of stuff packed in to just these few words. Um, So before we read, it it reminded me this week as I was studying for this passage of of my granddad, and towards the end of his life, as often as we would go and visit him, he would always make sure that the very last thing that he said to us was always a blessing. And so he he would be very intentional that as we were heading out the door to drive back eight hours to Lakeland, he would usually grab me and he would say something along the lines of, he, he liked using this little phrase, he would say, I'm so proud that you're a real disciple of Christ. And he put that little southern twang on it, disciple of Christ. And then he would, he would grab Sarah and he would tell her the same thing and he would squeeze my kids as hard as his feeble arms could and he would tell them that he loved them and was proud of them and then we would leave. Those are still words that we aspire to live into. And like we talked about last week, words that are spoken over you, especially by those that you love, have great meaning and great power to to help you to aspire up into what their words are, to live into those blessings that they have spoken over you. And very similarly, today we focus on another blessing. So last week we talked about the blessing of Isaac to his kids, and now today we're talking about the blessing of Jacob to his kids. And there's, there's very much a parallel between last week and this week that's going on. And so we find ourselves at another deathbed address, another goodbye speech, another blessing right before Jacob passes away. And so Jacob, just to to orient you, Jacob is Isaac's son. Isaac is Abraham's son. And Abraham is the one who this whole thing started with, with this blessing of a covenant that would would fill the earth with a nation that would be as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And yet, when you hear that blessing said, and then you watch how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's life go, those two things don't seem to match up. And the story that we're going to tell today and rehearse today, or maybe for the first time uh, that you'll hear, is another one, a very crooked path of providence. One that you, if you were to try to trace where is God in this whole thing, you might at various points have a really hard time finding him. And maybe that's true for your life. 
Maybe that's true for where you are right here today. I, I know that God's somewhere up there and He's you know, maybe managing things on earth somehow, but I really don't know exactly how I fit into that big picture today. And I'm definitely not convinced that He specifically is working in my life because my life seems to be going every which way except the way that I want it to go. And similar to Jacob's story, at the very end, he had a hard life. Just to, to very quickly say what we're going to go into much more detail about later, he's, he starts his life by stealing a blessing from his brother. He's on the run from his brother because he hates him, no kidding. Uh, he's tricked into marrying a girl that he doesn't actually love. Uh, then his son, who he loves more than the rest of them, is sold into slavery. He thinks he's dead and gone, thinks he's never going to see him again. Then he, experienced, he and his family experience a severe famine. He has to leave his homeland and wander towards the great superpower, the great pagan world superpower of Egypt. He had a hard life. And there were many points where I'm sure he wondered, where is God right now? I'm not sure I can find him. But what the neat thing about the Jacob story is, and again, this is not just a story, the neat thing about the real man Jacob who experienced the faithfulness of God is, you know how trials go. Trials can either do one of two things. They can either harden you or they can soften you. And the neat thing to watch is what the trials in Jacob's life do to his heart. He does not become an old, angry, sullen, cynical man. He becomes soft and humble, and he worships his best worship at the very end of his life, which tracks very opposite to many that we know that it's very easy for life to just run over us and make us very sullen and very sad. And so I hope this morning is a contrast and in some sense, another blessing over you, a, a vision of what we can together aspire to live up into in these heroes of the faith, but that we also see that there's a lot about them that is not very heroic. They're very much like you and I, but they give us a template and a picture of what God does with broken people and humble people and people who know they need him. So, we got one verse this morning, and here it is. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship, there's that word, over the head of his staff. There's a lot packed in here. And so we're going to spend the, the majority of the sermon just telling the story and trying to unpack the truth that's in here. But here's maybe a summary statement. Jacob had a massively dysfunctional family. Massively. His parents messed up. He messed up. His kids messed up. Can anyone relate? But at the end of his life, he marks the faithfulness of God as the one son who he thought was dead and gone actually comes back around and is not only alive, but is faithful to his God and has actually grown through the trials in a very similar way that his father has grown through trials even though they didn't even know each other. So since God has shown himself faithful, we see Jacob's response is to live by faith. 
And so by faith, he blesses. So the three movements that we're going to track through this story in Genesis is this. By the way, Jacob gets more press in Genesis than any of the other Old Testament characters. So God thinks that this is important enough to give a long time to. And so again, let's make sure we understand Jacob's story. So we're going to talk first about the broken past of Jacob's family, then the blessed future of Jacob's family, and then finally, the present hope then for your family. So the broken past of Jacob's family. Let's, let's dive right in. So Jacob is born to Isaac, and he has a twin brother. And these twin brothers, it, it describes in Scripture that it's like they're having a boxing match as they grow inside their mother. And the minute they come out, they, they're still scrapping with each other. And Esau is the firstborn. Only by a few seconds, but he's the firstborn. But the way that it describes Jacob is that it's as if he has him by the heel and he's like right behind him. He wants to be the best. Even from his birth, he wants to be number one. His name, heel grasper, actually is an idiom in the day that was used to describe deceit, lying, trying to, to make things in such a way that they would go well for you even at the expense of other people. And he really lived into that name. So he's, he's born to Isaac. And, he, you know, remember, this is the Isaac we talked about two weeks ago, if you were with us, where a miraculous moment in Isaac's life is when he thinks he's about to be sacrificed and instead there's a ram caught in a thicket that God provides and a substitution is made and he no longer has to take the knife that his father was going to plunge into him and instead this ram takes it. God's amazing, miraculous provision. And so you can imagine that shaped his life. If there's ever been a moment in your life where God has really shown up, you make sure you tell everybody about that. It just naturally comes out of you. And so I'm sure that as Isaac is, is fathering his son Jacob, that he's telling him about this grand story and the story of, of the faith of his grandfather Abraham and what God has done time after time after time to show himself faithful. The covenant blessing that he gave to his granddad that he is a part of. They're in a special family. He must have been telling him those stories. But even with that, Jacob was always one that liked to take his life into his own hands. Again, maybe you can relate. He's one that liked to make sure that he manipulated things with his own will to make sure that life went the way that he expected it to go. And he was always jealous. He was always jealous of that Esau. He was always jealous. He was just a few seconds before him. Why couldn't he be the firstborn? Why does that matter so much? In, in this ancient culture, the firstborn blessing is not only just something that makes you feel good about yourself, though it is. There is very much a sense of affirmation that the firstborn has a special place in the family. But it not only was tied to that, it was also very much tied to money. It was tied to land. It was tied to prospering. If you were the firstborn, you got the majority share of everything that was in the father's household. And then the rest was kind of divvied out. But you were the big kahuna. You were the one who made sure or who got all of the best from the family. And so he wanted that. He knew that was what 
God had given to Esau, and from the moment he was born, he was jealous of it. And so fast forward, we're, I'm not sure exactly when this was, but probably sometime in their teenage years because it's, uh, it talks about how hungry Esau was. And, you know, no one's hungrier than when they're a teenage boy. So there's, there's this moment where Jacob is described as one who's more of a, uh, he's more of a homebody. He liked to cook. And one day he's in, the, uh, he's in the kitchen and he's making some red stew. And all oh, this stew smells so good. Uh, you know, it's like one of those things where the, it's wafting out the window and it kind of drags Esau in from the field where he's been working. And Esau walks in and says, what, what's that smell? It's red stew. Yeah, I, I made it for me. And Esau's like, well, come on. Like, can I have some? I've been working super hard out here. All you've been doing is making soup. And he says, and again, very crafty, Jacob. He says, sure, sure, you can have some soup. How about this? I'll trade you. I'll trade you. You give me your firstborn status. Just, just a little thing. And I'll give you some soup. How about that? And again, Esau, is ir- he's hangry, and so he said, okay, fine, sure. And the exchange is made. He receives that blessing that he has been so jealous for. Now, fast forward to the end of Isaac's life. He had received the status of the firstborn blessing from his brother, traded it for a bowl of soup, but he didn't tell his dad about that. And so he still had to receive the words of affirmation from his dad. He had to complete the picture so he could truly be the firstborn. And so again, broken, messed up, weird family. His mom and he conspire against Isaac, old, blind, about to die. And they conspire against him to trick him so that he can get the blessing instead of Esau. And so again, one day Esau is sent out he knows Isaac is about to die, and so he says, please, will you go and make me some of that great food that you make? And so Esau goes out, and he goes to, to kill some kind of something so he can make some dinner. And in that time, Isaac sneaks in. I'm sorry, Jacob sneaks in, and he covers himself in the smells and the feel of his brother. And he goes before Isaac, and he poses as his brother. And he does it. He not only has the status given to him by Esau all those years ago, but now he has the blessing over him. I'm spending a lot of time here for a reason. And so as you can expect, after that, there was always a little bit of trouble between the two brothers. Maybe if you've ever gone sideways with someone in your family, those can be really difficult to moments to to play back. They can be difficult moments to to sort of pull back in. Those can be really broken relationships for a lot of years. And this was very much one of those. And so uh, Jacob and Esau are like mortal enemies for a number of years. Esau chases Jacob out of town. Jacob is on the run. He's He's a man on the run. And he goes next to his uncle's house. And when he winds up at his uncle's house, you think, okay, well, maybe he's kind of, you know, he's past all that. He can move on. He's got his eyes on this lovely young lady named Rachel. He's so excited. He's going to start a new life. He's going to leave all that behind him. And what happens? Well, the trickster gets tricked. The deceiver gets deceived. He gets played at his own game. And instead of marrying 
who he thought was this lovely young lady named Rachel, he ends up accidentally, again, there's, a, there's sort of a thread of his hastiness, he accidentally marries her more homely sister, Leah. Now, eventually in the course of time, he winds up getting both of them. Uh, children are born to both of them, and then, but he picks his favorite. The, the firstborn child from this lovely Rachel that was his favorite, this little boy named Joseph. Oh, that's my boy. Now I got some other kids too, but that's, that's my boy. Isn't this like a giant soap opera? Like the other day, um, we leave the TV on for my dog so he doesn't get lonely. It seems like a good idea. And so we were, uh, we leave it on, you know, whatever channel was on last. And so if you leave it on NBC and then you walk back in at about two o'clock in the afternoon, what do you find on? Days of Our Lives. This is, this is a Days of Our Lives episode happening in the pages of Scripture. This is so messed up, so twisted. I mean, family really can be that messy. And, and really, sometimes the Days of Our Lives episode can't even fully capture how messy real family life can be. There's episodes in our lives that are way weirder and way worse than a soap opera. And so first, I just want us to be oriented in, the, there is a, a scriptural category for brokenness in families. There is a, a scriptural category that families can be messy. Can I get an amen? This was God's promised family even. This was like the tip top, the cream of the crop. This was the one, the one family through whom all families of the earth would be blessed. And they can't even get it together. Still a mess. How about yours? Maybe you've been on the receiving end. You're, you're on the younger side of life, and you've been on the receiving end of a lot of familial brokenness. Naturally, that might lead you to anger. It might lead you to judgment. It might lead you to distancing. It might lead you to withdrawing yourself and your love. Or maybe you're on the other side, and you've been the one who has caused a lot of those hurts. You've been the one who has contributed to some of that brokenness. And so perhaps you carry around with you a, a weight of guilt, a weight of shame, a weight of hoping that you can just push that fear and that guilt off of you long enough to make it go away, that you can just cope with whatever it is to make yourself feel all the better. The good news of the scriptures is that there are categories for both of those. There are categories for those who need to grieve, for wrongs that have been done. And there is a category for those who need to repent for wrongs that they have done. And both of those find themselves squarely in the pages of Scripture and squarely within the sovereign plan of God. But in both cases, it's so much easier to grow bitter and cynical than it is to actually sit in the pain of that broken reality and to process, and to work through, and even to engage back in, in a manner that God might call you to repair some of those broken parts. 
And so can God work in my family brokenness today and in yours? Yes. Could he even be calling you into some of those places to be an agent of redemption? Yes. So that's the past. That's what's gone on for Jacob. Now, what about the future? Because this isn't all doom and gloom. This ends very well. Because we find ourselves, uh, the particular passage that Hebrews eleven twenty one is pointing back to is Genesis 48. It's the very end, the bitter end of Jacob's life. But he is not a bitter man. Do we find a bitter, cynical, guilt-ridden, shriveled-up, angry old man? No, we do not. We find a man of faith, a man of confidence, a man of conviction. And how does he get there? How does he, as Hebrews eleven twenty one describes, at the end of his life, how do you find him? You find him worshiping. How does he get there? How do you get there? He consistently and systematically is responding and recalling to his mind the Lord's past faithfulness. And it humbles them. And it reminds him that he has not been the one who has controlled his way through this life. It has been the Lord who has sovereignly controlled his way. So the first thing he brings up in uh, Genesis 48, 3 and 4, he says, God Almighty appeared to me. This is him speaking this blessing over Joseph and his two sons. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you. This is referring back to Genesis 28. He's recalling in his mind as an old man what had happened to him many years ago, where as Jacob is literally running away from his brother Esau, like we already described, he puts his head on a rock and he's so tired that he falls asleep out in the middle of the woods. And in a dream, God appears to him and he sees a ladder and angels going up and down. And in that moment, God reminds him and speaks back over him words of blessing. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. He's reminding him, you screwed up, Jacob. But your mess up did not mess my plan up. Your irresponsibility has not superseded my responsibility to provide and finish the promise that I started. And then fast forward to Genesis 48, 15, where it says that the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, again, recalling another massive moment in Jacob's life. What is that moment? He's recalling back to Genesis 32 where the Lord drives a decisive blow in Jacob's heart by driving a a decisive blow into his hip. Again, still on the run. He's trying to to buy off his brother to, to make him be appeased and just, you know, maybe make him go away. And again, another night comes. And this time, it's not only a vision that he sees, but he gets practically a punch in the face. And all night he struggles and wrestles with this angel who is described as the Lord himself. And as he he struggles, he is struck in the hip. 
and lives the rest of his life with this limp. Even in Genesis 48, in this last moment of his life, Jacob is described as hoisting himself up into bed, probably feeling that same pain in his hip that was given to him so many years ago with that limp that he had been walking with from that time until this one. Recalling periods of hardship in his life, but periods of God's great faithfulness. That truth is now cemented in Jacob's mind. This is no longer just some theory. This is no longer just something that he heard at church and is sort of, you know, wishing and hoping maybe one day will come true. He is at the end of his life. He has experienced the faithfulness of the Lord, and now he is standing on it. And as he stands on it, he's reminded of one more thing, and this final blessing is one that's literally sitting right in front of him. Because what is sitting right in front of him is his son Joseph. His son Joseph, who his brothers, realizing that he was Jacob's favorite, had sold him and threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. He thought he was dead and gone forever. In fact, his brothers told their dad, yeah, he died. Sorry. Not sorry. And in this moment, and again, we're going to get more into Joseph's story next week, but through, again, another crazy soap opera kind of story, Joseph is alive, and he's back, and he's right here in front of Jacob, the son who he loves. And not only the son who he loves, but now he has two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, here's the problem. Ephraim and Manasseh are only half Jewish. They they are only half heirs of the covenant promise. Their dad is from Abraham's line, but their mom is some Egyptian lady. And so what is Jacob doing here but affirming that even though God's plan has taken you all over kingdom come, you are still very much a child of the promise. As convoluted and confusing as your life has been, as, and his concern is that they would not go in the Egyptian ways of worship, but they would follow Yahweh. And so he speaks this blessing over them. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob blesses Ephraim, and he blesses Manasseh. And normally, Manasseh is the older one here. And this is when it gets a little confusing. So read along in Genesis 48, verses 11 through 14 with me. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand, towards Israel's right, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his hands and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, with his left hand, on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Why did it take faith? By faith, Jacob blessed. Why is faith required for Jacob to bless here? Because do you remember a time in Jacob's life where he messed up a blessing? Right? How we started this sermon, how he started his life, he muscled his way into the blessing of God. And what he's doing now is symbolizing, I finally get it. 
I finally get that it is not by might, not by power, but by the Lord that the battle is won. And so the right hand of blessing, instead of going to the older, goes to the younger. This is how God works. And it's just one more affirmation of the way God works time after time after time. He does not work for the stronger. He does not work for the better achiever. He does not work for the one who is more able to bring his promises on earth as it is in heaven. He works through the younger. He works through the weaker. He works through the one that nobody would expect. And where do you see that ultimately portrayed? You see that in the cross. Where the right hand of blessing that should have been his only sons. Jesus, as he comes to earth, the right hand of blessing that should have been his sons for the perfect life that he lived, the only one who has ever done it, that right hand of blessing is taken off of the Lord Jesus Christ and is placed on you by faith. Yet again, following in the same pattern that all the Old Testament points to, he works upside down and backwards from what we expect. It is not the way of the world. It is living by faith. So let's apply this as we close. What is our present help? What is our present hope for our family, for ourselves, as we look at the checkered path that God has already led us on and fear maybe the checkered path that he might bring us on in the future? It reminds me of, uh, you know, that good old story that maybe we all just saw in a few months ago uh, around Christmas time, the It's a Wonderful Life story, right? Jacob's story is so much like George Bailey. George Bailey tries everything he can do to get out of this dinky little hometown, Bedford Falls. All he wants to do, he tells his dad, I hate this town. I hate the building and loan that you made. I want a big city. I want big, big business. I want big success. That's what I'm made for. I'm made for something more than this rinky-dink town. And he spends his whole life, in a sense, striving after that dream. And he trucks a lot of his family and he trucks a lot of his city in the process. Even to the point where he finally comes up against the fact that God just doesn't seem to be letting him get to where he wants to go. And so he decides to end his life. And again, through this miracle and this, uh, this silly angel named Clarence, his guardian angel, he finally comes to realize that that, like he says, quote, that measly old building and loan, that that really is the best that God had for him. The small, the unknown, the, the unamazing, the faithful presence of George Bailey in his family and in his city is the greatest impact that his life could have. And so three applications. One, your family might be broken like Jacob's. You might have real obstacles to feeling like you are being as blessed as God would have you to be. It may be betrayal, it may be deceit, it may be broken marriages, it may be wayward children, maybe it's your fault, Maybe it's somebody else's. I think we can take comfort, though, in Jacob's story. Find yourself in Jacob's story. Find, see how God uses things that seem so unlikely to bring about the best 
possible scenario for Jacob's heart. How does he end his life? In worship. How does he get there? Lots of hard stuff. And so if you're experiencing lots of hard stuff, it may very well be that that is exactly where the Lord wants you. Because he's got a plan in mind for the end of your life that you can get to the end and you can soft-heartedly bow before him in worship and say, not to us, not to us, but to you. Be the glory. Uh, Second, I think there is a, a, a specific call by faith to bless the next generation. And so fathers, this looks like leading your family and not abdicating your responsibility to YouTube or to teachers or to Sunday school. Uh, mothers, it looks like passing down the nurturing care that God has shown you in your words and actions to them. Grandparents, it looks like firing up your love for the Lord and passing that down to the next generations who are watching you for their example. Church family, wherever you are, father, mother, sister, brother, single, married, wherever you are, we exist in the body of Christ, in the family of God. And so you sit next to today your brothers and sisters, your fathers and mothers, and your children. And there is, there is something about the family of God and our distinct role to help each other grow up. To help each other in little things like Sunday school, in youth group, in college ministry, in discipleship groups, in birthday parties, in lunches after church, wherever you find yourself, to consistently be thinking, how am I helping this group of people right here and the broader church in Lakeland and the world? How am I laying my life on someone else that they could become great? Thirdly, don't pull God's hand off of the blessing that he's trying to do. Last point, Genesis 48, 17 to 19. As the arms of his father are crossed, Joseph says this, When Joseph saw that the father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's right hand to move it from Ephraim to Manasseh. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob knows exactly what he's doing, and he says, But his father refused and said, I know. I know, my son. I know this looks crooked. I know this looks backward. I know that the death of the Son of God does not look like that's where the, the, the blessing of the world would come from, but it did and it does. I know that the trials in your life do not seem to be the things that are going to bring the blessing of God in your life, but they are. Don't pull them off. Let God do what he's going to do. Humility and worship are the things that we are called to when God's hands seem totally crossed up. So are you asking God for anything right now that can't just be accomplished in one generation? Is your vision for your family, is your vision for your church family, is your vision for the city of Lakeland and the United States and the world, is your vision bigger and longer than just the end of your life? Are you investing now in something that in two and three and four generations, you'll reap what they sow. Because your name most likely in two to three generations will be forgotten. But the faith that you have 
and the others that you invest in and those that they invest in and those that they invest in will continue to bring the faith from fathers to children to their children to their children and on. It's how God has always worked and it is how he will continue to work. Who is God calling you to disciple today? Who is he calling you to father or mother today? Let's pray. So Father, we, we're scared by your sovereignty. We're scared by the ways that you work in seemingly impossible circumstances because when we're in the middle of them, and maybe we are in the middle of them today, they don't feel very fun. They don't feel fulfilling. They don't feel like you're there. They don't feel like you have a plan for us. They feel very crossed up. We pray that we would be able to see with eyes of faith your crossed arms. We pray first that we would be able to see that if you have given us your son, how will you not also give us all things? The ways of the world seem so right. Being stronger and better than everybody else just feels right. But settle us in our weakness and settle us in your strength. And in that, would we humble ourselves and pass this faith that you have driven us to the ground in so that our children and their children after them and our nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters in the faith would continue to pass this upside-down kingdom on until kingdom come. We pray in your name. Amen.